Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today you're going to hear my conversation with Jeff McFetridge, who has been called the most famous Canadian artist you've never heard of. And that's wild because so much of his work exists all around us. Like if you're in Ottawa and you commute to work, you probably walk by one of his murals. If you have an Apple Watch, you can set the Apple Watch face to one of his designs. If you buy, I don't know, Nike sneakers or a Uniqlo t-shirt, you might be looking at one of Jeff's designs. If you've ever seen the movie Her made by Spike Jones, his design is all over that. Jeff is from Calgary, Calgary, Alberta. Right now, he's got an exhibition of paintings up at the Cooper Cole Gallery in Toronto. And we saw this as our chance to highlight the work of a Canadian artist that we think you should know more about. Someone, though, who has managed to keep a lot of mystery around him. Heads up, if you want to see some of the work we're talking about in this conversation, like follow along, looking at some of the paintings, you can find a visual companion guide at cbc.ca slash Q. Like I said, Jeff is an Alberta boy at heart, uh, but I reached him at his current home in Los Angeles. If you want to get in touch with the show, Q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. Uh, And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, we'd love that. Here's my conversation with Calgary's own Jeff McFetridge. How are you? I'm great. So happy to be here. I like introducing you as Calgary's own Jeff McFetridge. That's uh, that's really nice. I think that the CBC would do that, but no one else does that. People go like, wait, where's Calgary? You're Calgary's own? <laughs> yeah. Can- Canada? Where, where's Canada again? Canada. Yeah. What was Calgary like growing up? I mean, I grew up in like a, in the suburb. You know, Calgary is mostly suburbs. So saying I grew up in the suburbs, but um, like it was a like a subdivision called Edgemont. But at the same time, like what's sort of amazing about growing up in a suburb in Alberta is like behind my house was always prairie that basically went to the Northwest Territories, you know, like it just kept going forever. So I had this, like, I've always lived this sort of dual life. My family was like very rooted in Canada. My grandfather was born in Calgary. Um, He's Chinese. Him and my grandmother had a convenience store in Chinatown. So I had these, like, I had this, all this, my life has been about these sort of dualities, you know? Was was art, I mean, so you mentioned your grandparents had a convenience store. I think your dad was a, a lawyer. A lawyer. Your my mom, mom's a teacher. Your mom's a teacher. I don't see, I don't see any artists in, in there. Like, was art a viable path for you when you were a kid? No. I mean, but at the same time, my dad's a lawyer, but I have an older brother who's two years older. And when he was born, he dropped out of art school. So he was at in University of Alberta in mm-hmm. Edmonton, and he switched to social work. I don't know. There, There's art in our household, I guess. Like my mom taught art in elementary school. So as much as they're like a teacher and a lawyer, there was, you know, our lens was pointed a little bit towards creativity. Um, I grew up in a house in where my dad made all the furniture out of plywood, right. out of like being cheap, but also at the same time, he thought it was cool, you know? But at the same time, I didn't have any role models that were, I didn't know, I didn't know design exists. I didn't know 
being an artist was not was like an option at all um i really discovered that through like subculture as i got into skateboarding or snowboarding like music those sort of hobbies like required like a visual equivalent so for me it was like oh i'll make posters because this culture needs visuals and that's how i discovered art like before that i was like i'll be an architect because they get to draw you know right right i understand that so like you know Art was kind of one thing of the paintings on on the walls, and you were like, "Well, that's not the kind of thing. That's not the kind of thing I do. I don't really have anyone in my no. life like that." But like, I'm part of, you know, I'm hanging out with people who are in punk bands. I'm hanging out with skateboarders, and help me understand that better. Like, all of those things had a visual component, and you said I can kind of do the visual component of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's like a history of pop culture that you know psychedelic music was equally visual as it was like it had a sound. So like these cultures that define themselves by how they looked as well as how they sound, who participated. And I think like by the time I, you know, I was born in 1971, my cultures were like the eighties into the nineties. These were like these hyper-developed cultures where they were branded, they had uh, video components and, you know, beautiful, amazing graphics. It was, I describe it as like the hard drugs popular culture. Like you step into skateboarding as much as it's like, I loved skateboarding. It also was like the coolest looking thing there was. Like just like graphics on boards. Like the the object was a hand silk screened, multicolored object that you then destroyed. Like it's like the most beautiful sort of way to experience visual culture. And so that's why, I, you know, I hate talking about skateboarding all the time, but it it does like that was like this sort of like primal, like source material for me to then go become like a visual person and figure out ways to be a visual person in the world, which is like being an artist, doing design. How do I get work out in the world? Like put it on things participate with people, collaborate, make brands. Like there's this sort of template that I think came out of that like DIY culture. That that path is interesting to me when you mentioned DIY culture there, because like I feel like in that era when you get into punk rock, there's kind of two paths. There's like the hedonistic, <laughs> boozy, yeah. druggy, and that can also like lead to great art. Like that can lead to yes. some like pretty wild, amazing stuff. And then there's the kind of path you took um, which is the straight edge path, which is like associated with hardcore bands out of DC, DC like Minor Threat. You know, for people who don't know, it's like no smoking, no drugs, no drinking. Like, how did that? The fact that you got into that part of the scene, how did that sync up with the kind of artist you wanted to be? Straight Edge was a tool to like navigate the world. Like it was like a way to organize things for myself. Like the one thing about growing up in the suburbs and not having like necessarily like direct role models of like how to live, you were, uh, it was a little bit like this void. I wanted like structures. I was never comfortable drinking. Like I'm half Asian, I'm basically allergic to alcohol. There was all these factors, right? So I came into it as like, oh, this is something like that'll help or like how I'm going to operate. Like, I think part of being visual is you're, you're taking in a lot and I'm into learning and I'm wanting to decode the world and I want these sort of answers. And so it's like about like seeking clarity through experiences. You want to have so, a clear mind. You want to have. Yeah. Like I, I was into punk rock. I was like, how does this work? How, where did that come from? Is what am I not getting? Where, 
like as an outsider all the time, you know, finding things that I was an outsider to and then learning about them and these sort of like details of culture. And I think that that's like very different than like, I want to go to the punk house and get wasted and like have this other kind of experience. Like for me, it was like about like taking in a lot. And then that also then became about like making a lot, like producing for this culture, so, like speaking in the language of it. So, so, so it was never about anything like ethical for you. Ah, uh, do you know what I mean? I, no, I would say no. I think in retrospect, I think it was like I believed in things, and but I think it for me it was more about. I look at more like from as like a like a grown person who has kids and seeing like, oh, that was a way for me to like narrow. I was overwhelmed by the world. It was a way to narrow down the world a little bit. So one of your first jobs right out of art school was working with the Beastie Boys. And this is when they were like the biggest band in the world. Weenie body rockin'. Not perfection. Let me get some action from the back section. Body moving, body They had this magazine called Grand Royal, and you were the designer of it. And Spike Jones was there, too. I mean, it all seems really romantic to me. What do you remember about that time in your life? It was, you know, there was like, there, I mean, they were the biggest band in the world. Like they were the coolest, but they were also actually the biggest. Like they would headline Lollapalooza. Yeah. Right? And so I had the same experience with BC Boys. I was like, I moved into their office and I was like, and there was, you know, there's a lot going on. Like they had this, like, they recorded the album, like one door over. Like, you know, there's all this BC Boys stuff going on. And my, what I did was I moved out. I moved across the street and got my own studio. I rented a room outside of it. Like I didn't want to be dealing with the sort of like the heaviness of that. Like I didn't have the capacity. I wasn't like, I want to go on tour with the Beezos. I was like, I just want to like make stuff and like contribute, you know? Well, it sounds to me like, and I'm not Dr. Phil here, but it sounds to me like there were like scenes that you were really attracted to. Like it might be the punk scene in Calgary, but you wanted to have some level of distance from it so you could kind of protect yourself or you could kind of like negotiate the terms of how you, of your involvement in it. And yes, then, doctor. <laughs> listen, you're going to get such a bill at the end of this. Uh, oh, people think they pay into the CBC. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to pay out. Um, and then when you go to the when when you're you're at this, I mean the Beastie Boys in in that era in the '90s, I mean that would have been ill communication. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was um, they were sabotage was the biggest video in the. No, entire I world. was listening to Check Your Head in my friend Paul Diego's like Volkswagen hatchback, like his rabbit. You know, listening to Check Your Head and being like, oh my god. years later pretty much three years later i'm working with mike d like it was wild it was but, like time travel magic but uh, yet you're like i want to do this from across the street and as an outsider looking in yes i really like to have control yeah. over what i'm doing yeah maybe it's like i wanted the calgary of like across the street was like calgary in yeah. la you know what i mean yeah. like it's like a little bit like i'm a distance i'm a distance guy like, I want to learn from the Beastie Boys. And for, I felt like learning from the Beastie Boys was easier across the street because within the confines of it, it was like overwhelming. I, I understand what you're saying there. I also, like, that sounds like a tough time. I mean, like, I was reading about you then, like, you were making like 12 grand a year. You had like stress, yeah. stress, 
skin rashes? Oh, yeah. I was so like, I mean, I was so confused. Yeah, eczema, basically, which I just thought I just had. But it turns out like there's a lot of things you have in your 20s that are just like, it's just about stress, you know, like allergies, like crazy allergies all the time. So like that is like talk about capacity. Like I was finding my capacity, you know, I was at my like limit. I mean, you were living in a garage. What like what? It, yeah. it all seems romantic now. Like what what made all that worth it? Living in the garage like wasn't it had no effect, you know, be having like no money because I think I was following a path of things like once you find things that you truly like believe in, like, you know, are real to you. It's so like overwhelming that everything else becomes superficial, you know, like whatever money or other types of success. Like I was turning down. It was very it's always been very easy for me to like turn down sort of like financial opportunity or sort of conventional opportunities for things that I really believe in. And I think that that's one of the benefits of being a visual artist is that basically you're on your own and it's hard enough that if you don't believe in what you're doing, it's just too hard to do, right? Like laying out a magazine is too hard to do that if you don't believe in it. Like if it was sort of easy, like I think that's what's tricky about like if you're in certain types of business or mm-hmm. you're just sort of moving money around. It's easy enough to do that. If you don't believe in it, you can be like, well, I'm going to, I have a boat. Like I'm going to yeah, go. Yeah. 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 Like, I, I, I play golf on the weekends. I can do this to yeah. support the golf habit. But, yeah. But there's enough of a grind in being a visual artist that you sort of, it sort of forces you into a role of being sort of a believer and being, yeah, it's exposed. You'd be truthful in what you're doing. It, it responds to that. love that sentiment. The path of an artist is so hard, regardless of what kind of art you're making, you really got to believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, why bother doing it? Just do something easier. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. That big idea was from the Canadian graphic artist Jeff McFetridge, who's been talking about his path through punk rock and gallery shows to becoming a huge designer who works on brands and movies and music videos. Actually, the song you're hearing right now, this funky jam, is from a music video that Jeff designed. It's called Golden Cage by a band called The Whitest Boy Alive. And when you see the video, you really see a lot of Jeff's work um, and you'll see what a lot of his clients love about him. He's not giving you like a hyper-realistic image. It's these curvy, minimal line drawings. And I asked him about it. It's because he wants to give you a feeling through his drawings. That's where the next part of our conversation picks up. There is a great simplicity to the way you draw, you know, just a few shapes, just a few colors. Where do you think that comes from in you? Like, I've always felt like I could do, like, I had, like, an ability. I could draw really well. I was, like, the kid in school was like, have Jeff. Jeff's the guy who draws. Like, I could draw things for people. And that was more just because I like to draw. But if you're sort of someone who can, like, do something like drawing, you start to think, like, well, what's more? And I think that there's an aspect of like, I'm making simpler and simpler images, but I'm growing the thing that I love, which is the thinking and the feeling, the sort of concepts around it. And so like, as I grow as an artist, the images, like, I'm like, 
I don't even draw fingers anymore. Like I'm like yesterday I was working on a painting and I'm like, oh, they're just like fists because I'm like, I've drawn enough fingers in my life and, you know, or whatever that it's sort of like the strength of, for me, the value and the things is less about what they look like. And so there's fewer lines. So the simplicity in what I'm doing isn't, I don't even, I don't feel like it's necessarily connected to like art history or things I've seen. Like, yes, it is. Everything is. But it really is a very personal evolution that I yeah. see in the work. If I'm in the studio and I'm just sitting at a desk, I'm not looking at anything. I'm just it, like looking inward and imagining things and pictures. I mean, it's something else then that that, that work you're talking about, the stuff that comes from deep inside you, ends up becoming like something that does very well commercially. I mean, you know, you get a lot of work from Pepsi and, you know, Vans and, mm -hmm. and MTV. Because I apply, because that's like a belief system. Like I believe I can draw a simple image and that it'll hold my thoughts and my intentions, right? I believe that as people living in our culture, we're, we're the most visually literate people that have ever been. Yeah, We've since now, like since birth, we've seen things that are like this highly evolved visual culture that's usually asking things of us. It's usually asking us to decode it, to sell us something, or there's many different types of visual culture, but we are, whatever it's doing is it's spelling it out for us. So I think that when I make this work, I'm within that culture and I'm speaking this language of our world, but in a weird way in with poetry. So poetry uses language. I'm using visual language and I'm using it to create this poetry. And yes, it appears simple, but I think to me, the value of my work. And when I see people respond to it, I know it's like, you're decoding. You're, a, you're, I'm, you're believing in what I believe in, which is you can tell my intentions in this work. And so I'm very careful about what I make my work about because I believe in it. Like I believe it'll say something, you know, vague or explicit. So, so you're careful about the use of your work in like a commercial way. Yeah. So like I use that in commercial work as well. Like I'm very, I don't get cornered by clients to produce work that's manipulative. I try to be generous, even in commercial work or work. Um, generous to me, not public. to the client. Gen generous to the person who's going to see yes, it. Yes, generous to the visual. Yeah. Because the person who sees it, they usually have no choice, right? So I like it to be like, oh, I'm giving you a gift. And so that can be as simple as like, it's kind of funny. Or sometimes it can be like, it's kind of clever. But behind that cleverness, it's never... Like, if you look at my work, it's like, none of it's really funny. It's like, yeah. it's about revealing humanity and it has like a human value. And that I think is worth giving it, it's worth of existence on a shoe or for Apple, you know. But these these are multi-billion dollar companies who are sort of like known for restrictions. They're like, they're, they're okay with this. They're okay with you going like, hey, I'm not going to do the manipulation here. This is the thing that I do. And, and here it is. Over time, since I've been doing it, the restrictions just fall away. Yeah. As And I think it's like when I started, I didn't even get credit for work. Now it's like, oh, Jeff McFetridge for Hermes. You know, like it's like it used to be you wouldn't even be allowed to say you did it. And now like I have this list now of all the logos for corporations that I've hand drawn. And it's like this long, like it keeps going. Like I just did a project for Hermes and they let me hand draw their logo. It used to be there was a rule. Like when I first pitched it to Nike, they were like, our lawyers say, you're not allowed to draw our logo, logo, hand draw it from memory. And now I've done all these brands, you know, like Vans, Nike, 
Apple. I did the Apple logo recently. Like the giantest brands are letting me draw their logo from memory because that's what I like to do. Because that's that belief I have. Like we have all these logos in our head. Like yeah. I'm going to draw it, you know? I hope you can take this in the spirit in which I'm asking it. Um, I spend a lot of time on this show and and in my own life kind of thinking about that that interaction of art and commerce. You know, as someone who came from punk and came from, you know, DIY, I mean, like, you could not find anything more uncommercial than, I mean, in ethos than, like, DIY music, especially in the 80s and 90s. How do you, like, do you have to reconcile that, that, that work with the corporate world and then the sort of, like, punk skater world you came from? I mean, I think it was, like I say, it was harder when I started because it started, like, the first thing I was offered that I was like, am I going to do this or not, was for the X Games. And they were like, they saw a piece of art I did and they said, can you just do that exactly for us? And I was like, wait, no, that's mine. I, that's for, that was like in a show in a gallery. But then I saw like, oh no, this is the world. This is my world. Like X Games is my world. These are like, it's like skateboard culture or something. So it was like, if I'm going to do work, this is the place like it should live. And that the work should be strong enough that it'll withstand these sort of ideas of like selling out or like somebody, like a corporation, like taking it from you. Like I can retain ownership. Like when people saw the work, like I was very sensitive to it. But then when my friends saw it, they were like, that's so cool you did that. Like as if like you got over on them. That it felt more like when you do like a logo ripoff or like, you know, you take the logo and you switch it for your name, that that existed already, right? So we had this relationship with like, okay, we're in this branded culture. Let's co-opt it. Let's take from it. Let's use this as a stepping stone for our own work. Yeah. Let's use their that like their platforms for making our own work. And like that's sort of naive. But at the same time, I saw that the way the work was being received was very positive. So I was like, okay, I just have to, this is interesting to navigate. How can I navigate this very carefully? How can I do it in a way that feels good? Because I, I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of gatekeepers in the in the art world. You know, um, those mm-hmm. who, those who would say that commercial work, by virtue that it's commercial work, cannot be emotional work. I mean, my participation in the art world, like it's about like the same way in design. I was inventing my own type of career, my art career. I'm sort of inventing that in many ways too. Like when I'm like a designer having art shows, and then I'm doing collaborations, I'm doing work for clients. There's no question of that complication. Like nobody cares right? yeah, yeah. in the world of like sort of commerce. In the in the art world, they do care. They're like, oh, like you're doing like commercial work. Like how do we, okay. how do we put a value on you? How do we place you in art history? If there's nobody like Andy Warhol was a commercial artist and he stopped, you know? Robert Rauschenberg was making, doing window displays at Macy's and he stopped once he could sell his paintings. My interest is like, what if Andy Warhol kept doing shoe ads? What if Robert Rauschenberg kept doing window displays? I personally think that's really interesting. I'm interested in like, how muddy can it get so that the value you're placing on the work is more about, it's not about like, this museum bought a piece, so it's okay. This writer wrote this piece to put you within an art historical context. That stuff's great. Count me in. But without that, how can you also operate in this way? I'm really independent. I like to be independent. I want to be like, what if I did that and did that too?
I'm really glad um, Jeff took the time to explain that to me. I really never thought about like the balance of commercial work and artistic work like that before. That's the, the first part of my conversation with the most famous Canadian artist you've never heard of, Jeff McFetridge. Coming up on the show, he'll talk about one of the most famous movies that he's known for, what really happens when you sign a contract to design a transit station, and a question I like to ask most artists on the show. Are you Banksy? Coming up, more with Jeff McFedridge after this. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the Canadian designer and visual artist Jeff McFetridge. Jeff's from Calgary, Alberta. On one hand, he's a graphic artist and a painter who designs for some of the biggest brands in the world, your Nikes, your Apples, your Uniqlo's. On the other hand, Jeff is a skater, someone who grew up with punk, sort of an anti-corporate DIY mentality around him when he was a teenager. And we talked about that tension earlier in our conversation. But for this part, um, so the film director Spike Jones in particular is a good friend of Jeff McFetridge. And this next part of our conversation, I spoke to Jeff about the time he designed basically all the technology you see in Spike's movie, Her. If you didn't see Her, it was this film about AI, about this lonely man played by Joaquin Phoenix, interacting and kind of falling in love with this Siri-like AI assistant. And Jeff made it look so seamless and warm, all this terrifying technology. And I know what you might be thinking right now. This is all kind of prescient. By the way, I know this is always tough, like radio or podcasts about visual art. So if you want to see some of the work we're talking about in this conversation, you can find a visual companion guide over at cbc.ca slash Q. Here's more of my conversation with Jeff McFetridge. The way a lot of folks um, who do know your name would have been more to maybe introduced to your name would have been through um, a lot of your film work, you know, whether it's the the titles for The Virgin Suicides. I didn't know until I recently that you did the the hearts for The Virgin Suicide and the, and the, yeah. the handwritten titles, being John Malkovich. I wanted to talk about Her, which is um, the strangely prescient Spike Jones movie from a few years back where uh, a man falls in love with his AI, you know, virtual assistant. Basically, all the technology that movie, the way it looks, was created by you. How do you feel when you hear people say that the kind of the visual style you have for that film has become sort of prescient in our own world? I mean, I think it's amazing. I mean, I went into that project being like, I have no place doing this. But at the same time, knowing that, like, believing in my process, believing my ability to be like, take on something this sort of like impossible thing, like imagining what interfaces will look like in the near future. Like, I'm like, can my creative process based on drawing, like invent something that is that sort of tangible, technological, like theoretically, you know, there's people who dedicate their entire careers 
to developing these things. And so, but I, as a believer, like I know I can fake it. Like within the context of me, I know I can like present because, because there was like a concept behind it, which for Spike was the near future is nice. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. So I wasn't just making technology. I was like, how do I create a piece of like these images that project an interface in a nice future? So I had something to work at. Like that's like the, the concept behind it. And so like that is really what I feel like is like the secret. That's like the sort of secret to why that work foresaw yeah. what interfaces look like now. You know, because I think that wasn't going on. Like the people who were experts, they weren't, they weren't like saying, like, how can we create a nice future? How can we create a positive future with what we're doing? They're thinking of like efficiencies, brand, rather than what I think is the most in thinking of like to enable a positive future, we have to imagine it. Like that's what designers should do. Of all the projects you've done and all the projects we've talked about today, I've heard the one that really means the most to you, or at least like is makes you particularly emotional is a big mural you created for a transit station in Ottawa. Yeah. What is it about that mural that moves you? I mean, it was like, yeah, that's like something that people in my country are going to see every day. And that part of doing public art, which, you know, people might know, is that you sign a contract with uh, your client, which was the transit system in Ottawa, that they will maintain and keep it for the life of the building oh, like they wow. can't they have to take care of it they, it has to be there forever and so in all the public there's a deal that, there's a deal that says like okay i'll do this yeah. for you but it can't fall into disrepair yes why was that meaningful to you i mean i guess it's like thinking about like legacy like thinking about like how do you make things that last like you every day you think about like how do i make this good but then there's other factors that if it's good or not, it'll disappear. And I think everything disappears, but it is nice to like build into the process something that's like, something that says like, this will not disappear. As someone who's been making art seemingly, I mean, I was, I was going to ask you about this and we're running out of time a little bit, but I know you're also an ultra marathon runner and I know one other ultra marathon runner and the way he talks about it is that he can't help but run. Like, it's a compulsion. He has to run. And I'm seeing, yeah. again, not to be too Dr. Phil here, I'm seeing a, 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 a correlation between, like, that feeling of, like, ultramarathon runners need to run and you who seems to, like, need to make art. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I'm fairly, I have, like, an energy for things of, like, doing things. Like, when I'm in making art, I often, like, dig into the zones that I have like that are used for ultra marathoning, like trail running, where you're like, oh, this is unreasonable. This is unreasonable and I'm going to continue. And just you keep, you know, in that moment when you're standing and like I'm working on a painting and I'm like, should I change this color, this tiny amount of degree? It's going to take me two hours to change this color out. But that's the that's the ultra part where you're like, yes, yeah. I will. You know, and I think that, I, you know, I question it as well, but it's like sort of a useful thing to be able to be on your feet that long. And yeah. So, so what does success mean to you then? Or are you like Sisyphus? Are you just like, is success for you just pushing the boulder up the hill for the rest of your life? 
Pretty much Sisyphus. I mean, I think that the thing I've learned is like, I have, I've done so many things that I've dreamed of doing and it's not like you're unsatisfied, but they show you each sort of success or achievement or accomplishment is just shows you like, oh, it teaches you that what you're looking for is deeper than those surface things. It's deeper. And that, to me, that's such a positive thing. Like if I was like satisfied, like, oh, that's great. Then I think it wouldn't, you know, it's like, how are you going to continue? You know, how do you play the long game if you're like satisfied? But at the same time, it's that the work when it's rewarding, it's like rewarding this like sort of this feeling of just like getting things done. Like it's very simple. Like it's nice to get things done. It's nice to make things with your hands, you know? And I think that that is, uh, that doesn't get answered by like achievement, you know? Jeff, I've learned so much um, getting to know your work and getting to talk to you today. I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're not- Such an honor to be here. You're not, you're not Banksy, are you? <sighs> I'm bank. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why I'm really here. Yeah. <laughs> this is just a conceptual art. But, I, but I'm just me playing Jeff, who's actually playing Banksy. Oh. But the real me is in the other room. Yes. Oh, inter- we asked that to- um, yeah. We asked that to Irvin Welsh one time and he said, <laughs> and he said, no, but I know who is and didn't elaborate. I have so many people, I have so many friends who are like, oh yeah, Banksy, he's just this guy. Yeah. <laughs> British people all, they all, British people are good at keeping a secret because yeah. if you're at like one degree of arts removed, you all, you know, Banksy. Yeah. You're, oh yeah. I went to, I used to go to the pub with Banksy. You know, you, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. always say that. Um, uh, and all, all jokes aside, um, again, I learned uh, so much from getting a chance to talk to you. Um, I, I love getting a chance to talk a little bit about your work. Thanks for making the time for us. Thank you. That was the Canadian graphic artist and painter Jeff McFetridge. If you're in Toronto, you can stop by his latest exhibition, Nature Mart, which is on display at the Cooper Cole Gallery until January 20th. We've also got a visual guide to this interview up at cbc.ca slash Q. I also recommend taking a look at his Instagram at McFetridge. And that's it for us. The other conversation we have up today is uh, my conversation with the stand-up comedian DJ Demers, who has a new show based on his time working at a used sporting goods store in Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario. Go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.